The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. through the book of Esther. And so if you have a Bible, uh, please go ahead and open that up to Esther. We're going to be uh, at the end of chapter two, beginning of chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, please, there should be one close to uh, one of your seats. And so feel free to grab that. And I'm going to move these because they're going to get kicked. There we go. Um, and, uh, and we are going to be in Esther chapter two, verse 19 through 315. I mean, I, and I, I love Esther just because uh, Esther is a story, it's an era, and it's a really, um, it's a really beautiful story. It reminds me, honestly, kind of like a, a Disney movie, you know, like of like Cinderella, except a little bit shadier, you know, like it's like the PG-13 version. Uh, and so uh, it's got this, you know, it's really uh, about this rags to riches kind of story about this redemption, this rescue that God, God is doing for his people through the most unlikely of places. And so as we really read this book, it captures us in, you know, because it's all about these ironies, these reversals, that you would have this poor orphan Jewish girl that would become the queen, that she would then go and move from being a a woman that compromises to be a, a woman that would risk her life to save her people. And so you just see all of these beautiful things happen throughout the book. So uh, as we talked before, there's going to be five things that we're, we're seeing over and over and over again in the book of Esther. And so I'm not going to talk about it too long, um, but we see the first thing that we see in Esther is God's silence. Is that it, Esther is a good book because it helps us and it speaks to our own experiences. As we have experiences and times where we don't feel like God's there. Where are you, God? I don't see you. I see all of these circumstances around me, but where are you? And Esther speaks to that. It's a book that doesn't mention God's name. And so it encourages us because it says, listen, it, it validates our experience, but also the second truth of Esther is it says that God's activity is everywhere. Even though God's name isn't specifically mentioned or miracles or prayer, God's activity is everywhere throughout the book. And it's same for our life. As though sometimes we don't have the right glasses, we're not seeing God work. God is at work everywhere in the minutia, in the details, in the places you thought God wasn't at work at all. God is at work. And so the third thing we see is that God uses broken people, right? Esther compromised. Esther, you know, um, wasn't honoring the Lord at, at, at the first as much as she could have been. But God used her to rescue his people. And so it provides us hope because if we, any of us take moral inventory, we look at ourselves, we see we're all broken, right? We all have selfishness. We all have pride. We all have greed. We all have, we all have a brokenness that we struggle with. And it's good news that God still uses us. That God doesn't say, listen, I'm just going to wipe my slate clean with everybody and I'm going to do it myself. You know, instead God is gracious and he chooses to use people that are broken, people that are compromised. And we see God's heart of rescue. Even though the people there, they had abandoned God, they, they'd left, they, they could have left to go to Israel. They could have left to go to Jerusalem, but instead they stayed. They stayed in this place of exile. And God could have said, well, listen, you know, you could have come back, but too bad, you, you missed your chance. But no, God says, I still love you. And I'm still going to redeem you and rescue you for my namesake and God's heart of rescue. And then the fifth thing is that God's people are people of celebration, right? This is where the whole Jewish celebration of, of Purim comes from. And so we as a people are a people of celebration, right? I mean, we're celebrating Thanksgiving right now, but like we are a people of celebration because the story, the end of our story is one of goodness. All of our stories, when we come to Christ, it is one of a happy ending because of Jesus. And that, that tints everything. It makes us a people of celebration. So 
With that, we're going to dive in, um, and I'm going to tell you the, the big idea on the front side, because uh, just so you know, we're going to read, and we're going to stop along the text, and we're going to talk about it, we're going to comment, and then there's really just going to be two big points that we talk about at the end after we get done reading the story. So the big idea of this text is that God's people have enemies that seek to destroy them. God's people have enemies that seek to destroy them. We can have courage and hope, though, for God is able to protect his people and is able to overcome his enemies. We can have hope and we can have courage because God is able to overcome uh, his enemies and he is able to protect his people. So let's dig in. Esther 2, 19 through 3, 15. Verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time. So what we see when we look back over the first couple chapters is that uh, King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, uh, he kicks his uh, current queen Vashti off because she wouldn't become a sex toy for him. And he's like, you know, he's just lost a battle to the Greeks. So he's in a depressed state. And, uh, and his homeboys come up to him and they're like, hey, we're going to cheer you up. Let's get a bunch of girls. And, uh, and so they, they get all the most beautiful women uh, across the, the Persian empire and they gather them. Out of that, he marries Esther, right? He sees Esther, she wins his heart. And chapter two earlier, he, he marries Esther. So what in the world is, is going on here? You, why is he gathering a second, uh, a second group of virgins? There's a couple options. Some people think, well, maybe it's just the same virgins he's gathering again. Or maybe, you know, um, you know, what seems most likely is that he actually isn't even content and he still is, he still is increasing his, uh, his harem. He still isn't even content in his marriage. And so he's gathering more and more women. And what I think that this shows us is that, um, is that when we take sex out of its God-ordained bounds, it is like a fire and it will consume you. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your life. It knows no bounds. And so it warns us that even the king, he has all these women and yet it's still not enough. It still doesn't content him. He has to have more and more and more. And that's the very nature of what sexual immorality does is that it consumes from the inside out and it leads to discontentment, that it's not enough. You have to watch more, you have to do more, you have to have more, and it breeds discontentment with good things that God has given. So he goes on, it says, he got more versions together a second time. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. What this means is uh, Mordecai wasn't just like loitering, right? He wasn't like, I got nothing better to do, so I'm just going to keep outside the king's gate. No, the king's gate is synonymous for a uh, position of administration, Right in the king's gate was it was this opening this area where officials came where commerce was held and so people gathered together to do business and so when it says that Mordecai was at the king's gate it's meaning that he was in a position of authority that he was an administrator right he was in some place doing business in the king's gate it's much like when we say that uh, a judge is you know sitting at the bench right it's not like the judge is just like you know hanging out chilling on a bench like no sitting at the bench is you know synonymous with that he is a judge that he has a place of authority and that's the same thing for what it, it's talking about with Mordecai and so he's sitting at the king's gate and that Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him one of the things that we see with Esther one of the you know, last week we looked at the areas in which Esther compromised. You know, Esther didn't seem to keep the dietary codes, that she didn't seem to honor the Sabbath, that she married, you know, she didn't seem to have too many problems with sleeping, you know, with a pagan king before they were married, let alone marrying a pagan king. 
But one of the, the winsome character qualities about Esther is that you see that she is, a, she is a woman that is loyal to Mordecai. Mordecai has cared for her, has raised her up, and she honors him. She trusts him. And so she submits to Mordecai. And, and so it's Mordecai's plan to say, hey, Esther, listen, we need to keep your identity hidden. Now, we know that obviously the Lord would have her to stand boldly on that, just as Daniel and others did, but it's still a winsome quality for her to show her honor to Mordecai by submitting underneath his leadership, by saying, I trust you, I value you, because Mordecai was her cousin, but he took her into his own home and cared for her as a daughter. And so he loved her deeply. And this shows us that, you know, Mordecai is also portrayed as this, this man of wisdom, this man of shrewdness that sees into it and, and genuinely does have um, what he knows to be Esther's best interest. Now, you know, hundreds of years in exile, it's easy. And I think it, we're, we relate. We sometimes think that this is what is, is in somebody's best interest. But, but even though we care for them, even though we might think that it's in some, someone's best interest, we might still be wrong. And so Esther thought that it was in her best interest to hide her identity, even though, even though all throughout we see exiles that the Lord stands behind them when they, they stand up for their identity in him. So it goes on. Esther's keeping her identity secret. She's listened to Mordecai. And those days, verse 21, and those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs. So eunuchs uh, are kind of a star, they play a star role in the book of Esther. And uh, there are a couple different things. Jesus talks about different kinds of eunuchs. Matthew nineteen twelve it says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, right? So they're just people that are born that aren't able to reproduce. And he would say that they're eunuchs, that they're born and they're in a perpetual singleness. He said, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That's not a fun experience, um, I can imagine. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, right? So there are people that intentionally have been set apart for singleness, for the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now you see that Esther has gained favor already with one of the eunuchs, Haggai, and uh, he was over the king's harem. And now there are two other eunuchs that guard the, the threshold. And, uh, and Mordecai discovers that these men are plotting to kill the king. And we don't know why. Apparently, they just got very angry with him. One of the things that we do know is that oftentimes, uh, eunuchs that were made eunuchs by men, especially in the Persian Empire, what they would do is they would take young boys that they had, of nations they had conquered, and they would castrate those, and then they would put them into service because they thought the th- thinking behind it was that, well, you're not able to reproduce, so therefore you're going to be loyal to the king, and you're going to be loyal to the empire because you can't have any progeny, and we've squelched any romantic interests. And so that was a practice that um, many empires did for young men um, coming up. And so apparently, for whatever reason, uh, they, these two eunuchs were upset. It says, that they guarded the threshold and became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So Mordecai is operating in his daily business. He's in the king's gate, he's doing business, and apparently somehow he has this insight and hears about these two men that are plotting to kill the king. And this segment, it shows us that Mordecai isn't a fool. Mordecai is shrewd. He understands how the world works, and so he knows better than to go through the normal affair. I'm not just going to go report to one of the guards and hope that it gets to the king. 
Instead, he goes to Esther. He circumvents those means because he knows that the king is going to hear it. And so it shows us that, that Mordecai is shrewd, that he's a man of wisdom, but it also shows that he still is looking out for Esther. I mean, if you can imagine, if there's an assassination attempt on the king, I'm sure it's not going to go too well for the queen either. And so you see Mordecai still has this, this care, this protection for Esther. He still is looking out for her. It says in verse 23, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Chapter, one, verse th- or chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Wait a second. Hold on. Did anybody else like kind of say, what just happened here? At the end of chapter 2, who's the hero? Mordecai, right? I mean, Mordecai's the hero. He just saved the king. He just rescued the king. I mean, the empire is safe now because of Mordecai. What just happened in chapter 3? Haman is being elevated. Like, can anybody think of like an, a more unjust, unfair situation? <laughs> I mean, if, is there anything that you can do that's a bigger deal than saving the king? And yet, it is put in the books and forgotten. And now Haman is, is elevated. Now, we don't know this, but the original readers of this would have immediately seen the animosity that is between Haman and Mordecai, right? It says that that Haman was from the Amalekites, right? And so for us, what that means is, is that when, well, first, Amalek is kind of the founder of the Amalekites. If we look at the history of Amalek, Amalek is actually a descendant of Esau, so uh, Esau's, Esau's son was Eliphaz, and then Eliphaz's son was Amalek. And so we see that it's a branch off of Esau. But what happened with the Amalekites is that when God chose to rescue his people from Egypt, right, they're enslaved, God you know, splits the sea, rescues his people, brings them to Sinai, says, you're my people now. On their way to the promised land, after they're tired, they're hungry, they're beat down, they're worn out, the Amalekites come and they kind of jump them. They kind of, you know, catch them off guard and they fight them. And so Moses has to stand up. He has to have his hands lifted up and eventually they, they win the battle. But they, they suffered loss. And it says this in verses, uh, Exodus 17, verses 15 through 16. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And so you see, there is this animosity that has been from the time of Moses and come out. And before they go to the promised land in Deuteronomy, Moses is like talking to them in Deuteronomy, reminding them, hey, here's some important things. And he says it again. He's like, hey, listen, don't you forget those people. Don't forget the Amalekites. Remember what they did. Remember what the Lord promised. And so he reminds them yet again. And now many, many years later, you have this united kingdom that comes, right? The, the Israelites, they're in the promised land and the first king comes onto the scene, Saul, right? Samuel comes, he anoints Saul and he says, you will be the king. And, and God tells Saul, he says, remember the Amalekites? I want you to go and I want you to com- completely devote them to destruction. As I've, as I've told you, as I've this is the time. And Saul refuses to listen. 
And said Saul spares the king and he keeps, uh, he keeps plunder and he disobeys the Lord. And this is actually what loses Saul's kingship. Is Saul loses his kingship because of his disobedience to the Lord. And this is what Samuel tells Saul. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so we see Saul, because of his disobedience and letting uh, Agag, the king of the Amalekites, live, he's stripped from being the king. Now, why in the world is this important to us? This is important because Saul is from the line of Benjamin. Mordecai is from the line of Benjamin. Do you see that Saul's great, 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 great grandson, right, likely, is Mordecai. And because of Saul's disobedience, because of his refusal to listen to the Lord, Mordecai is now paying the price. We have no idea the cost of our obedience or our disobedience on those around us and those that are coming after us. And this is, this is teaching us this, is that you don't think about it now, you think oftentimes in our listening to the Lord and our obeying the Lord, we simply think of ourselves. And we think, oh, well, it's not that big of a deal. It only affects me. And that's a lie. That is a lie. What you don't understand is that our obedience or disobedience, it affects everyone around us, but it also, it has massive impacts on the generations that are coming after us. And we don't know that. And so that's why it's so important that we just say, I'm going to be faithful in the process. I'm going to trust God, even though I don't necessarily see what's going to come of it or what's not going to come of it. I'm going to choose to trust that God knows better than I do in this. And so we see that, that this ancient rivalry that has been going on for literally millennia at that point in time has now been brought to the surface again. That it's now the roles are reversed. Whereas Saul used to be the one in power and able to have you know, control over it, now the roles are flipped. And Mordecai is the one that's put in a position of vulnerability and Haman is put in a position of authority. He's, he's given the second place in the kingdom. And so he has his authority. Now he's been advanced, and in verse 2 it says, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage now we see here Mordecai's boldness. I mean, this is a second in command in all the kingdom. And this isn't like an insignificant impact. I mean, if you're second in command, I mean, we see Haman has the ability to kill as he pleases, right? I mean, he can go and, and he could have chosen to kill Mordecai then, but he, he chooses to exact a more vengeful posture. But this is an act of boldness. We don't know exactly why Mordecai didn't bow down. It has something to do with the fact that he's a Jew, right? Because he was silent. He refused, to, he refused to talk or discuss. Instead, it, it says that he remained steadfast in his position. That I will not, he will not bow down. He will not pay homage to Haman. Now, whether that's because he realizes that he's an Amalekite or more likely what I think is it's because he's honoring the Lord in this. As he chooses to honor the Lord and he says, I will not bow down to any false God, to anything else that is exalted above the Lord. And he says steadfast in that. And that takes that takes courage to know that your life is on the line, to know that your neck uh, could be on the line for standing up. But yet he does. He stands up. He refuses not to, to bow down. 
It says in verse three, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he, dis- he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So what we see here is that Haman has been disdained. He has been disrespected in his own mind. And so he says, listen, it's not enough that I would just kill Mordecai, but I'm going to kill all the people of Mordecai. And what we see in Mordecai is that we see what the Bible pictures as a man of pride, a man that is full and stuck on himself. Right? What happens when you pair someone up that has great power and is extremely prideful when they feel that they're, they've been extremely disrespected? That's what you get with Haman, is that you have a man that is full of himself, that thinks the whole world operates around him, and then he feels that he's disrespected. And so he flies off the chain. I mean, he gets extremely angry and he says, not only am I going to kill you, but I'm going to destroy your whole people. I'm going to commit genocide, not even just for, for the men, but for the women and for the children. So he is set against God's people altogether. But notice, what does God's word say about those that are prideful, about those that are stuck on themselves? Isaiah 2.12 says, the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Proverbs eighteen twelve: before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And so though right now the positions are changed, we see Mordecai in this position of danger and of humiliation. We see uh, Haman in this position of power and of pride. The story is preparing us for the shift that's going to be happening. It warns us that when we are, when we are prideful, be, be careful because that is going to be when we fall. I remember my dad always sharing that. Whenever I'd, whenever I'd get full of myself, he'd always come and say, son, you better watch yourself. Pride comes before destruction, a high spirit before a fall. And so we know that this text is preparing us for that. Continues on in verse seven. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not in the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Brian Gregory says, in short, Haman is suggesting that these people are different, difficult, and dangerous. King Ahasuerus, these people are far different than what we are like. They're different, they're strange, their customs are, are odd. And not only are they different, but they're difficult. They won't change. When we talk to them about, about changing and, and adapting to our environment, to our culture, they're stubborn. They refuse to assimilate. 
And not only that, are they different, but they're dangerous. They're dangerous because of their insubordination, because of their refusal to change. It puts the whole empire at risk, don't you see? Lest people follow their example and start rebelling against the king, we should destroy them. The empire is better off without them. And he says, not only this king, but, but I will pay you 10,000 talents of silver. Now, unless this is hyperbole, this is about two-thirds of the empire's annual revenue. So this is a ton of money. Think about how much the GDC of America is in the trillions. He says, I'll pay you two-thirds of that. I'll pay you two-thirds to kill them off, to destroy them. And apparently the king is like a puppet. I mean, this shows us once more that the king is not able to think for himself. He's not able to reason for himself. He doesn't think about, well, if it's really my best interest, why are you paying me? <laughs> why is it that you have to come and, and convince me so desperately that these people are evil? Shouldn't it be evident to me? And so he, the king is but a puppet being played by all the people around him. Their strings are being pulled. And so the king says, do with them as you please. Take with them and, and do them. You can, you can keep the money too. He goes on. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples. To every province in its own script and every people in its own language it is written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. What's really interesting about this part is that he, Esther's really detailed and, and talks about dates and times, and you kind of wonder why. And in this first part where it says that there, the edict, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written. That 13th day of the first month, do you know that, that that's the day before Passover? That's the day before Passover. And so while God's people are gathering together, they're thinking and seeking to remember all that God has done for them and delivering them. There is an edict that goes out that declares that they shall all be destroyed. Do you see the irony that the story is setting up? That though the people of God are celebrating God's miraculous deliverance of them, there's a decree, decree in their circumstances saying that God has left them and that where is God to be found because there's a decree to destroy them. And so it, it shows that just that our appearances aren't always what is true and aren't always what is the reality and what is going on. It goes on. It says, letter was sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And Brian Gregory also says, he says, presumably the only conceivable reason that Haman wants to prolong the agony of the Jews, right, because he's, it's, it's 11 months. He, he commands that they're going to be destroyed and they're not going to be destroyed for 11 months. And so why? Are they just incompetent? Like, can they not get an army together? Can they not send out messages fast enough? No. I mean, the Persian empire was known for being quick in its administration. 
they're able to send out this information quickly and efficiently, and they're not getting an army together. If, if we read this slowly, what, what they're saying is that they're telling their neighbors, the people that live right around them, to commit genocide. They're saying, kill the Jews that live in your midst. If you're a neighbor, kill them and take all their stuff. And so they're able to issue this quickly, but why? Why is 11 months time? And he says, there's no other reason, there's nowhere for them to escape within the Persian empire. All they can do is wait in agony for 11 months with their execution approaching closer and closer day by, the, day, by day. No doubt the agony would have been intensified for many Jews when they realized that the edict was issued on the day before Passover. The sense of reversal would have been both ironic and bitter since Passover was an annual festival celebrating their forefathers' deliverance from the oppression of Pharaoh, the edict's timing would have been a bitter pill to swallow since it was decreeing their destruction under, under the oppression of Haman. But it would have been painfully ironic as well. The selection of the Passover lamb would have taken place on the 10th of Nisan. Similarly, the selection of Jews for slaughter by Haman also took place on the 10th of Nisan. The correlation is impossible to miss. In verse 14, it says, A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The last thing we see is that the king and Haman have just issued genocide. They've just commanded that not only is it genocide by an, like, let alone an army, but he's commanding his own people in the Persian Empire to kill their neighbors. Rise up, kill your neighbors, and take their goods. And it says that all of Susa was in confusion. Right? They're all thinking, what in the world has just happened? Like, we're commanded to do this? And the king and Haman are chilling out, feet kicked up, having a drink. It just shows the coldness and the distance of the king that he does not know or love his people that he is entirely wrapped up in himself. And it shows Haman's ability as a, almost a psychopath that has no feelings or emotions or care for others. And we're left with this chapter kind of with this, this sense of doom. I mean, we've got this weight sitting over God's people. Is how are they going to escape? Right? I mean, they're not able to run away from the empire. It's already been decreed. So how, how is rescue going to come for God's people? What are Esther and Mordecai going to do? So a couple, the two points that I think we can take away, two things I think we can learn from this story. First is that we can have hope when things don't turn out our way. We can have hope when things don't turn out our way. I mean, we see that exactly with Mordecai. I mean, think about this. It, Mordecai is putting his neck out. He's, you know, he's talking to Esther and he's telling her, hey, the king's gonna be killed. There's no greater thing that you can do in the entire empire than to rescue the king. I mean, think about it, like you're, you've just rescued the king, you're waiting for some kind of reward, you're waiting for some kind of recognition, and instead, your name's written down, and you're forgotten. You're forgotten. I mean, how hopeless does that feel then? Is there ever a chance for you to be recognized? Is there ever a chance for you to be honored if you've done that and not been recognized? And so it puts you in this posture of like, what could I ever do Right? What can I ever do good that's ever going to be recognized if this isn't recognized, if this isn't affirmed, if this isn't seen? And not only that, not only is his good deeds forgotten, right? Not only is he overlooked and, in, and he's seen as almost insignificant. I mean, think about what he must feel, anger, frustration, bitterness. I mean, 
not only is he forgotten, but also his enemy is exalted. A person that is morally bankrupt, right? The more we see about Haman, the more we see about how vain he is, the more we see how morally bankrupt he is. And while Mordecai is a picture uh, of, of wisdom and of care, of concern, he's putting his neck out to risk and save the king, while Haman is simply using the king and cares nothing for the king. And so the irony of this is that the person that actually cares and has great concern and has integrity is humiliated, is put down, is forgotten. While the man that is vain, has pride, uh, is using the king, is exalted into the second place. And so we're left with this picture saying, man, what do we do when things don't turn out for us? What do we do when we've done whatever we can do good and it seems like we're, we're overlooked? What do we do when circumstances don't bode our way, right? How does this, how does this apply to us? Right? Well, all of us face times where life doesn't turn out as we thought it should. Right? Whether you grew up in a, in a broken family, your childhood was marred and you had nothing to do with it. You didn't choose to be born into that family. You didn't choose to have your dad leave. You didn't choose to, you know, to, to struggle and see your parents divorce. You didn't choose any of those things. Those were your circumstances that you were given. Sometimes life doesn't turn out the way you think it should. Maybe it's a broken marriage. You have a spouse that's cheated or you have you know, these differences that just don't seem to go away and you're constantly fighting and it seems that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, it just doesn't seem to be able to be fixed. And the circumstances around you, it seems unfair, seems difficult. Maybe you've been diligent. You've worked hard your whole life. You've gone to work day in and day out, but there's something that happened financially and you're, you're broke, you're at the end, you got nothing left and you're sitting here wondering, I've worked my whole life, I've done everything I can, but yet I, I'm stuck in this situation and it doesn't look like it's ever going to get better. It doesn't look like I'm ever going to have the things that maybe once I dreamed of. Maybe you're here and no fault of your own, but you're constantly sick. You can't seem to get away from it, whether it's cancer, whether it's an illness, but it is constantly plaguing you. It's an injury and no fault of your own. You've done nothing, but yet it's almost this reversal. You are constantly at the mercy of the circumstances around you to this illness, to this frustration that that goes on. Maybe it's relationships in your family that you've done nothing or maybe you've done something and you've done everything you can, but the, the situation doesn't seem to change and, and you wish that circumstances were different, that it could just be changed. And this offers us hope. It offers us hope because all of us face circumstances that don't wind up as we thought they should or as we hope that they are going to. And, and what we, why we can have hope is I think three things. One is that God sees and God knows. God sees. He knows what's going on in the situation. It's not like he's indifferent about it. Even though it seems as if he's absent, he isn't. He is there and he is active and he is working. Just because we don't see it right now doesn't mean it's not true. God sees and God knows. The second thing is that this isn't the end. Right? For Mordecai, we see that this isn't the end of the story. Right? There is more to be told. And so it provides us with great hope because, listen, this isn't the end of your story. Even your death, it's not the end of your story. This life is but a very fraction of what our real life is going to be. And so we get so caught up because we, we forget that this is but a sliver. This isn't the end. This isn't how it, it ends up. And the third thing is that we believe and we have hope because God is able to reward those that seek him. 
God is able to reward those that, that seek him. Right, Hebrews eleven six it says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those that seek him. Right, this doesn't, there are times where God might reward us with being healed. He might reward us with, at times, relationships being healed. But let me tell you, do you know what the ultimate reward is? It is, it is being healed and reconciled to him that I promise you that eternity when we enter into that presence is going to be a far greater reward than what we could have ever imagined or seen right here. And all of these, all these unfulfilled desires, unfulfilled wants or longings that we have had, when we enter into that place, when we are fully healed, we will look back at them and we will see how actually they were a part of God's plan that he was working out. And it provides us hope. It provides us hope in the current. When it seems as if we're filled with despair, filled with depression, filled with isolation, as if things could never change and that they are what they are because they aren't. God is able, he sees, he knows. He knows. Second thing that we can see and we can learn from this is that we can have courage when our enemies seem to have power over us. We can have courage when, it's, when it seems that our enemies have power over us. And we see this exactly with Mordecai and Haman. I mean, Haman has power over Mordecai, no doubt about it. He's elevated second in command. He can do what he pleases, but yet that doesn't cause Mordecai to back down, right? Mordecai doesn't shiver in fear, but instead he stands firm in his conviction and in courage. And he says, I don't care if it costs me my life. I will not bow. I will not pay homage to you, Haman. And it gives us courage. And so too, the gospel gives us courage even when it seems as if our enemies have power over us. Now, a lot of us, we can't relate. We're like, well, I, I don't have a, a person that has power over me that says, I'm going to kill you. You know, it seems unrelatable. But let me tell you right now, there are millions of our brothers and sisters throughout the world where their situation is extremely relevant. In the last hundred years, there have been more Christians that have been martyred for their faith in the last 1900 combined. And so there are many, many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world that this story isn't just a story, but it speaks into their exact situation and their exact circumstances where they have a government that is actively oppressing them and it says we're going to intentionally seek to wipe you out if we hear of your faith if we see you countries like north korea vietnam china burma saudi arabia and iran all sponsor our government sponsored places that persecute christians whether that's locking them up in jail or whether that is execution and so this is very relatable to our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Let us not forget this reality. Second, all of us do have enemies. All of us do have enemies. Many of us think those enemies are physical people, right? Some of us want to pinpoint a person. We're like, hey, I know who my enemy is. It's that person, it's that person, it's that person, right? Maybe it's the, the ex-spouse. Maybe it is the bully at school. Maybe it's a terrible neighbor that keeps you up all night. Maybe it is the coworker, or maybe it's the in-laws that you're going to see this Thanksgiving. Yeah, I don't know who it is who you would point out and you'd say, that's my enemy, you know? But the Bible, the Bible warns us, and it says, listen, your enemy is not a person, it's not against flesh and blood. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, your real enemy, it's not a person. It's Satan. Ephesians 2 talks about that before we're in Christ, we are slaves, we are subject to the power of Satan, to, to his guidance and his direction. And so if you're here and you don't know Christ, 
Listen, the, the Bible says that, that you're stuck underneath his reign and rule and that God wants to rescue you. He wants to free you. And we don't see it. We don't understand it until after we've come to Christ and then we see in the ways in which we were being led astray, in which we were being used for, for evil rather than being used for good. And so God wants to rescue you if you would come to him, if you would accept him, that he would transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He wants to rescue you. Come to him. But it also helps us to see that we really do have an enemy, right? We have an enemy named Satan and that he does seek to destroy us, right? He seeks to, uh, to wage war against us. 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We have an enemy in Satan. He is real and he does seek to destroy us. And so often it's little things. It's compromising in the little areas of your life that begin to whittle away at your integrity and that make room for the big falls in your life to happen. It starts with saying, well, I'm too busy to actually have any kind of commitment to the Lord. Uh, prayer, it's just something I do, you know, every once in a while. And these are the small things. You think them insignificant, but these are actually where the biggest wars happen. Because when you start to push away the Lord and you start to push away his word, your heart becomes harder and harder to sin. And it makes it more and more likely and more and more easy for you to commit the big things that will grossly dishonor the Lord's name. But we are freed. Christ has conquered Satan. And so we have victory over him. We can have courage even in the face of spiritual attack. Not only this, but some of us, our enemy is sin, right? You're like, my enemy's me. <laughs> I'm my own biggest enemy. It talks about this, and I, I see it myself, you know, I think honestly I'm my own biggest enemy. While Satan and, and demons are our enemies, man, I, my own problems, my own pride, my own selfishness get in my way far more than anybody else. And so too, you know your sin more than uh, likely anybody else. Maybe your spouse knows a little bit better than you. But, uh, but, but your own brokenness, your own struggles, your own frustrations. This is an enemy that wages war, but by the Spirit we can have victory. It says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so God has given us his spirit that would live inside of us, that would help us to wage war against the enemy of our flesh, that we would learn to say no to sin, say no to, uh, to pleasures that, that the enemy would put before us that are here and now, that we would learn to say yes to God. We can have victory over the enemy of sin. And the last enemy is the enemy of death, right? The, the fear of death, I think, looms over lots of us. And it's leads to insecurity, it leads to, it leads to living selfishly. If we, if our, if we're constantly afraid of our own death, then right, what is, it says that you need to live for yourself, that you need to live for the here and now, that your time, your money, your relationships, they all should revolve around you. If your fear is death, it makes you live selfishly. But Jesus comes and it says in Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You see that Jesus died in our place, that he might destroy our fear of death, that death is not the end. You know what happens when we're not afraid of death? We can give our lives away. 
We're able to live selflessly because we don't think that this life is all there is. Because we think that there's something better that is coming that cannot even, that nothing in this life can compare to what is coming. And that means that our finances, our relationship, our time, they can be given away. We don't have to have such a tight grip on everything in our life. And do you know what that brings? It brings joy. It brings joy into our life as we aren't so tight fist with our lives, but instead we, we open our hands and we say, God, use these for your glory because it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's simple fact. He wasn't saying, listen, you know, it, it could be more blessed to give than to receive. He says it is. It is. He wants to welcome you into that life here and now. And how that happens is, is by choosing to say, death is not the end. I have no fear of death. I know the one that has conquered it. And my death will not be the end of this life. It's in the midst of these things, though, when we face circumstances, when we have enemies outside of our control where we wonder, God, where are you? You know, I'm in the midst of cancer and I'm struggling. Where are you, God? When I'm in the midst of fighting my spouse and things are going astray, when I'm in the midst of a divorce, when, you know, I'm, I'm struggling financially, where are you, God? Where are you at in the midst of these things? And you see this in Revelation 6.10 that there are people that have faced death and they are under the altar and they cry out to God. They say, oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. How long must we wait for justice, God? And I'm sure Mordecai is saying the same thing. How long will my enemies have reign over me? It's such a good news. Revelation 12, 9 through 12, it says this. And the great dragon, Satan, was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brother has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. We have victory and we can have courage in the face of our enemies right now because we know that this is not the end and that Christ has, has conquered. Christ has conquered. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this story that we can see that um, we can have hope when our circumstances aren't what we thought that they should be. And we can have courage even in the midst of, of our enemies, even in the midst of Satan, of our own sin and brokenness, God, that we, we can stand up and have courage to confess we can have courage to say that that doesn't define me. That's not who I am. We can have courage in the face of death even, God, because we know that this life is not all that there is. And so help us, God. Help us to not live for ourselves, but instead to live for you, God, that we might, we might have joy. We might have joy. That's in your name we pray, Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.